Well, good morning, everyone. I'm delighted that you're here in person. I'm delighted that you're home, and I'm delighted that no one is outside today listening uh, by the speaker. That would be unwise, don't you think, as Miriam said? Maybe they are sitting in a canoe. That'd be funny, wouldn't it? So, uh, good morning to you. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 17 as we continue to teach through this book. Uh, if you're at home, a quick reminder uh, that you can print your outlines uh, from our website. Just go there. It would be great. And uh, maybe if uh, uh, wives, you can tell your husband to get up and go print your outline and bring it to you. That would be great. So let me start this morning. A few months ago, we all witnessed uh, the tragic death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter and six others in a helicopter tra- uh, crash. And it was certainly heartbreaking. But what I saw on social media was what I saw often when celebrities die. Phrases like, heaven gained two angels today. Actually, those of us who know Christ and know the scriptures know that that is not what happens when someone dies, whether they know Christ or not. No one becomes an angel. But, But there's nothing like death to reveal what people really think about eternity. And speaking of the opposite of that, speaking of science, science tells us man is alone, therefore there is no God, and that his presence in this world is an accident. But at the end of the day, I think when people slow down enough, when they're sitting on their back porch, looking up at the sky all along, or laying in bed, staring at the ceiling in the midst of all that life brings, I think these questions come to mind. At some point, where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? It has to. And here's why. Because you and I and every other person are made in the very image of God. We share the nature of God. And so what God does when he creates us, he, Scripture tells us he puts eternity in our hearts to know that there's more to this life than the here and now. The great news for us is the Bible really answers all those questions and more, and it gives us this comprehensive perspective on God and ourselves and the world. So in our text this morning, it it really asks another one of those core questions, those big life questions. The Pharisees are asking another one of these big questions. The question about the coming of the kingdom of God. Or or put another way, Jesus, how does this whole history thing wrap up? How does this whole world thing end? Like, Like, what happens at the end, Jesus? Can you tell us that? Because here's the deal. If we have clarity about the end, then it really helps us to live well in the here and now person with a foggy end view typically does one or two things. He lives very hard for the here and now, and he acquires and gets and accumulates everything he can in this life with no regard to others or little regard to others. Or at some point, because life is so hard and painful this side of heaven and eternity, he spirals into despair The Bible speaks with great clarity on how things will end. It tells us all that God is moving history to a climax. 
He knows where it's going. He knows when it will end. He knows how it will end when his purposes are done. So in Christian terms, for us as Christ followers, here's, here's how we say it. We call this the end. This end, we call it the return of Christ as the King of Kings returns on his second coming. Every Christ follower should be moving toward this place. And the older I get, the more it's true of me that I am praying that God would return and return soon. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, when I, before I was married, I was praying, Lord, don't come until I get married. Then after I got married, Jen and I both were like, Lord, come quickly, right? But man, that's where we need to be, and here's why. We want Christ to return here so he will be exalted before the whole world. Where he finally sets aside his long humiliation and is finally exalted in all of his majesty and all of his glory. We as people want God to cultivate in us a heart, if you would, like the words that Titus wrote about in Titus 2.13. When he writes, waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. See, we have grieved if we know Christ. We've grieved the way we treated him, and yet he still saved us. And now we grieve the way the world treats him. And we want him to be vindicated and take back to the, the deed of the world in which he owns and created. So as we get into this, let me remind you of a couple of things about the rule and reign of King Jesus. There is a here and now and a not yet. The here and now, here and now is a spiritual but invisible kingdom where Jesus is building his kingdom one soul at a time via his church, via his people. Then there is a not yet kingdom where Jesus will one day return in his physical now and visible body to set up his not yet kingdom. And here's the deal. Only those who are in the here and now kingdom will be also in the kingdom to come of the not yet kingdom. Our text this morning, the big idea of it, is really life in this kingdom. Meaning how well we know and expect and look forward to the second coming of Jesus, which is the not yet kingdom, that really should affect and transform and inform what we do with our lives in the here and now kingdom. The two cannot be separated. Here's how Titus puts it again when we read the verses before verse 13 and the verses after 13 in Titus chapter 2. Look how he puts it all together. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, which trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawliness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Folks, great theology about 
the return of Christ produces great transformation in the here and now. Our text deals with both of those this morning. So read with me, uh, Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. <clears throat> Jesus, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. So here's what happens here. There's a question. The Pharisees come and ask Jesus this overarching question. When will the kingdom of God come? That's a half of a verse. And for the next 17 and a half verses, Jesus answers that one question, directing a verse and a half to the Pharisees and then turning his attention to another audience, the disciples. We know one thing that Jesus, when it comes to the Pharisees, has continually pointed out to us as we've worked our way through Luke or as if you read the Gospels themselves, and that is the Pharisees love the externals, do they not? They judge something or deem something good or bad based on how it looks on the external. Just in the last chapter, Luke chapter 16, it tells us that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And they were mocking Jesus or scoffing at Jesus. And Jesus' response to them where it was, You who are those who justify yourself in the sight of men. Man, they always want to look good in front of people. But God knows your heart. So it's not weird at all that they would ask Jesus about this coming kingdom. And the assumption was that they would see external proof of this. Show me. 
Come on, Jesus. When is the kingdom coming? You got to remember the Pharisees, they were the self-promoting or promoted accrediting agency for all spiritual matters. See, they expected, and that's what your notes say, you have flawed expectations, the Pharisees did. They expected when the Messiah came to set up his kingdom, he would immediately take over Rome, destroy Rome, and set Israel up as the crown jewel of all the world. They wanted to see proof of Jesus' power to meet their expectations that they now wanted to be in power. And despite, at this point in time, the many miracles that they had seen Jesus do, they wanted to see more. It was never enough. Daryl Bach, the world's expert on the book of Luke, puts it this way. At the narrative level, controversy is suggested by this pattern of questioning by the Pharisees. It's more than just, Jesus, I was just wondering. When is the kingdom of God coming? No, it's more than that here. It is Jesus. When is the kingdom of God coming? Come on. You say you're the Messiah. You say you know everything. You say you're spiritual. Tell us. We want proof. Let us know. There's an attitude behind it. So here's what Jesus does. He says the kingdom of God does not come in a way that can be observed. You won't be able to see it, nor will others. You'll not be able to say, look here, or look there, or point here, or point there. The reason is the expert, their expectations of what the king and the kingdom would be like are so distorted that they wouldn't recognize it if they slapped them upside the head, which literally is happening here. The king of kings is standing before them and they don't recognize who he is. Because their concept of the king and kingdom was so secular, so full of worldly power, so materialistic, they would not even consider that the king could potentially be standing right in front of them. And it's really exactly what Jesus told them in verse 21, is it not? He said, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The word there is really among. The kingdom of God is among you. And he uses this phrase to even push it in, which is behold, the kingdom of God is among you. Right here. When I picture this scenario, I think back, we've been watching the, uh, how many of you watched The, the Chosen? The life story about Jesus. Well, it's incredible. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen in the life of Christ so far. I would encourage you. We'll be talking more about it in the weeks to come as a church. But to bring this to life, I imagine Jesus says, Behold, the kingdom of God is right here in front of you. And their look on their faces just goes right over. Like they're not even considering that that's a possibility. <clears throat> Jesus' personal presence brought the kingdom and his personal return will consummate it. And they were blind to both. So after a verse and a half, Jesus is like, enough. You ever thought about, you know what, I'm not going to spend the time and energy talking to that person because they're just not ready to hear yet, Right? 
Jesus says, enough. So he turns his attention away after a verse and a half, and he turns it toward his disciples. And in doing that, the first thing he does is bring about the reality of this kingdom. He begins to paint a picture for them of what it would really be like in the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God arrives in verse 22 through 25. So, before we unpack that, let me give you a couple observations that we know to be true about the kingdom of God. That's going to help us think through the rest of the text. One is, the kingdom of God is to be looked at as a whole. Both the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus incorporates what biblically we would call the entire kingdom of God. And then secondly, Jesus to the Pharisees focused on his first coming, and now to the disciples, he's going to focus on his second coming. So he's building the case that the kingdom of God consists of both, his first and second coming. So here the Pharisees reject the kingdom because ultimately they reject the possibility of Jesus being the king. On the other hand, the disciples, they know Jesus is the king. They love him at this point. They've left all to follow him, but they have incredibly distorted views of what this kingdom looks like. So Jesus sets out to paint a clear picture, to be clear about this, what his kingdom and their presence in it will be like. Here's what he does. The first thing he tells them, there's coming a day that I will not be physically with you and you will desire to see me. He uses the phrase, the son of man, to connect himself to a very familiar Old Testament passage, Daniel 7, the prophecy of Daniel 7. And he says, one of those days of the son of man, he uses that phrase, which means on the first day of my second coming, the day of his return. He uses this word desire. You, you're going to desire to see me. You're going to have this driving passion to see the glorified king in all of his majesty. It's, it's reminiscent, if you would, of Psalm 13, verses 1 through 2, where David, four times in a row, asks the question and cries out, How long, O Lord? He's saying to them, you're going to get to a place when I leave and go and ascend to the Father. Before I come back, you're going to be asking, Lord, how long? How long, O oh Lord? I want to see you. I want you to make things right. And in light of that, he says, verse 23, that when you're that passionate about the return of the king to set up his kingdom, there, there's a susceptibility that you'll be deceived that you could fall prey to deception. So in verse 23, he tells them to be faithful and not chase foolish things or foolish messages. Meaning, as you're living for the kingdom and people say the Messiah has come, go over there, go over here, he's over here, he's over there, don't listen to him, folks. And he's going to tell you why in just a minute. He's saying, that's not me. Reminds me back in 1988, a few years after I came to Christ, there was a book that came out. Some of you may remember it. 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come at the End of 1988. That, that book sold because they failed to heed Jesus' words here in this text. Actually, 
People, there were stories of people putting on their pajamas on New Year's Eve, 1988, going up on their roof and sitting there waiting for the return of Christ. Fools. Every time something happens in the Mideast that's a little wacky, guess what rolls off the printing press? Books about Jesus is coming back. And here's what the scripture says. He's coming for sure, but only the Father knows when that is. For sure. So Jesus tells his disciples, don't go chase those lies. They're lies. You stay faithful to the mission, as steady as can be. And then in verse 24, he tells them why you don't chase those lies. It is because the return of Christ will be so sudden and so visible, and so powerful, and so overwhelming, and so explosive that the whole world will see it at one time. There, there will be no chance for miscommunication. The return of Christ will be so obvious, he says, and he uses this picture of a lightning bolt starting at the top of the sky as far as you can see coming across all the way to the ground. And maybe if you were up in the middle of the night last night, you thought Jesus was returning with some of that lightning. Here's, here's some more details the Apostle John gives us of this return that is so sudden and powerful and explosive that no one will mistake it. In Revelation 19, John says that lightning will come, heavens will open up, and King Jesus will appear on a white horse, eyes like a flame of fire, with a crown of jewels on his head, indicating his sovereignty. He's clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood with a sharp sword in its mouth. And on his robe and thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings. Jesus says, when I return, there will be no doubt who it is and what's happening. Don't chase those lies. And then in verse 25, he says, the son of man must suffer and die for the sins of the world before his second coming happens. And what the disciples don't know is they're going to have to suffer and die as well. So we have the reality of the coming, this, this picture, if you would. Jesus paints that clearly. And then we have the dangers of the coming kingdom in verses 26 through 32. So these particular verses tell us why Jesus told the Pharisees that neither them nor others would recognize the kingdom of God when it did come. And Jesus does this really by illustrating from two folks from the Old Testament, Noah and Lot. Now here's what we know about Noah and Lot. Walk with me. Think with me through this. Both of these men we know from the book of Genesis. Both Men lived among wicked men, and both men were spared God's judgment, while others around them were not spared. And at that time, no one that was living outside of Lot and Noah and a few family members were aware that the judgment of God was coming. So when the king returns for a second time, he'll not only set up a new kingdom, his kingdom, but he'll also enact judgment or final judgment for sin, sinful and unrepentant people who have failed to place their trust in him. 
So this text goes on to give us some details. It tells us everybody was going about their normal routine of life. Did you see what it said? So they were eating and drinking and marrying and buying and giving in marriage and selling and planting and building. Just life as usual, normal. No awareness that there was a king and no awareness of the kingdom of God. It was just what was in front of them. It was just what they could touch and feel and taste and see. Now we know all those things they listed as normal life, those weren't sinful. No. Jesus isn't condemning them because those things were sinful. Jesus is telling them and us that people lack an awareness, even his people who know him can lack an awareness of the king and the kingdom because their lives are only about the here and now. Because we can be totally immersed in the temporal. Jesus set that up in chapter 16 where the whole chapter he talks about money. Money is neutral, but he talks about what it does to a man's heart. Eternity is the last thing on their mind. Finding one's ultimate source of joy and significance of chasing the worldly dreams of pleasure. And honestly, if you put a gun to my head and said, Jeff, what's the number, <clears throat> what's the number one cause for a family losing the effect of a father if he's in the house? It would be chasing after wealth. Spend so much time and energy doing that that you lose sight. There's a mini kingdom of God around you called your wife and your kids. And when this happens, they, like we, become insensitive to eternal things. A spiritual malaise engulfs us. And we begin to think like my life, my money, my stuff, my career, my time, my my, my, and my. Totally unconcerned about God and therefore very unrepaired or unprepared for his return. <clears throat> then he goes on in verse 32. He gives three words. One of the shortest verses in the Bible. Jesus says the words, remember Lot's wife. I don't know about you, <clears throat> but when I read the Bible, things like that jump out with a big alarm on it. <clears throat> Here's Jesus, the King of kings, Lord of lords, and he literally says, remember Lot's wife. If he says I need to remember something, it makes sense that I probably need to do what? Remember something. What does he want us to remember about Lot's wife? <clears throat> well, to, to find out, we go to Genesis 19, 26. Lot's wife looked back from behind Lot, and she became a pillar of salt. Remember that? God was trying to save Lot and his family from the fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and she did not want to leave, folks, the material comforts and her high social standing with her wicked neighbors. She would got her worth from that. Her significance from that. She was totally comfortable. And God is saying, go. 
I'm trying to save you and your family. And she kept looking back when God said not to. And her desire to save her old life caused her to lose her whole life. Which takes us to the results of the coming kingdom in the last few verses. So in light of Lot's wife and the warning of the kind of attachments to the world that she had, Jesus gives us one of the most profound, upside down, unintuitive, inverted truths in all the scriptures. It's so against who we are. And it's so against what the world screams to us every day. Listen to these profound words. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I love how Charles Swindoll summarizes that verse. He says, how quickly, and this is in your notes, how quickly you can accept and embrace your agenda, how quickly you can accept and embrace his agenda for your life. Depends on how quickly you are ready to abandon your own agenda for your own life. When Jesus said to you and I, like he said to the first disciples, and we've been seeing this in that TV show, The Chosen. When he calls Peter, when he calls Matthew, he looks at them and he says, follow me. He actually meant it. Follow me was a radical call of self-denial in order to really live. Jesus is saying here, I'm not only your life, I am life. And you can try to find it in anywhere, in anything that the world has to offer you. You you can have everything and you will not be satisfied. There is no life outside of me. It will get old. It will wear down. You'll be a fool in the midst of what really counts. Eternity. See, us Americans, we tend to see Jesus as an add-on to the rest of our lives. Sort of like icing on the cake is how we can treat Jesus. But Jesus really intends you and I to follow him like there is no life apart from him. Because that's exactly what it is. It's all-encompassing. There's no separation between sacred and secular. And then lastly, in the last few verses, they could be called the left-behind verses after the best-selling book series by Tim LaHaye. He says two people in bed when he returns. One is taken and one is left. There's two women grinding grain. One is taken and one is left. Except the ones left stay here And they join the king in his return to set up his new kingdom. The two folks in bed, the picture here is that family and relationships will not protect you from eternal separation from God. See, the Jews thought that because they were Jews, they were in the family of God. They were automatically in. Jesus is making it clear here. Just because you're in the family doesn't mean you're in the family of God. Parents, if you have a child that knows Christ, 
doesn't mean you know Christ. That was true in my house. And then he has two women. The association with another believer will not save you is what he's saying here. Meaning, you can be a saved person, have an unsaved friend, and when Jesus returns, just because you unsaved and know a saved person doesn't mean you're going to make it. You're not. And then I think the chapter, maybe I'll talk to Jesus about this. It just sort of ends anticlimactically. Look at verse 37. Basically says, the disciples said, where? Where'd you take them? And Jesus says, you'll see vultures. And where you see vultures, there's death. His answer is eternal death. You know, I go turkey hunting. It happens at least once every year, turkey hunting. Where I'm in the woods, I'm a mile away from any road, and I see vultures circling. Here's what I know immediately. Something's dead. It's usually a cow, a farmer's cow, or a deer. And I know that's where death is. That was Jesus' answer. Now, here's what we need to do. We need to put some handles on this. We need to put some applications on this. Like, like we've worked our way through the text, but how does it look? Because no one needs to leave here not knowing some next steps. And the list is endless, but I want to give you some categories to think about. We don't want to, especially in these times, walk around in a spiritual stupor, <laughs> not aware of the king or his kingdom and our role in that kingdom in the here and now until the here and now becomes the not yet. So the first category is to resist nationalism. To resist nationalism. So this has been going on a long time. It's not new. <clears throat> but what I'm talking about is new in the terms of, you see it all the time. You have churches in America that bring all these American flags in. And look, I, I'm, I love our country. I'm thankful I'm in this country. But America is not Israel. You know that, right? So these churches bring flags in and they read First Chronicles and about, and they equate America with Israel. And then they have politicians stand up and speak about America. No, I want to speak about the gospel. And at the same time, on the other side, you have churches that literally stand in the pulpit and talk about the evils of Donald Trump. Like, folks, I want you to vote. I want you to prayerfully think through the issues of the day in light of Scripture. Ask the Lord to leave you, lead you and exercise your right to vote. We're called to be those kind of citizens. But regardless, as a Christ follower, who wins the election, what we need to post on our social media is Jesus Christ is still king. One writer said, if you post more about your politics than God, there's a great chance that politics is your God. There's too much of that in the church today. Resist nationalism. Secondly, resist cultural Christianity. <clears throat> Over 30 years ago, I gave a sermon in my home church, an all-white church in a little town in eastern North Carolina. 
And I was working at Clemson University at the time, so the majority of men that I'm working with here trusted Christ, and I'm discipling our African-American men on the football team and other sports. And I brought with me Vince Taylor, a linebacker on the team, and another guy joined us. To uh, Vince was going to give his testimony. I was going to give the sermon on biblical racial reconciliation, teaching through John chapter 4. With us, we also brought another African-American who sang a song. And after the service, let me just say this, 90% of that audience sat there apathetic, arms folded, like how dare you. After the service, a couple elderly ladies came up to the pastor who, look, in those days, 30 years ago, had incredible courage to allow us to come speak on that topic. And he was a godly man. And they said to him, Pastor, we had a good inward service today, didn't we? Let me just say this. I was not the sharpest tool in the box then. I'm very sharp now, okay? But I wasn't the sharpest tool in the box. I mean, I didn't really know the Bible, but here's what I knew. I grew up in that kind of environment, in that kind of home, when it came to cultural Christianity. And when I came to Christ, it was like scales fell off, and immediately, intuitively, I knew as a Christ follower... You got to think bigger than that. I'm going to be in eternity with people from every ethnicity, and yet we can't be in the same church together. Mind-boggling. It's cultural Christianity. It's worldly Christianity. It's demonic at its core. There's been a lot of good happened since then. There have been churches, people like me, who came out of that and said, no, that's not about the king or the kingdom. And there needs to be so much more of it. Lastly, this is sort of fun. Not a few weeks ago, I called out the call before you dig, folks. I'm going to put some shrubbery around my air conditioners to hide it. and So, I, you know, I know me. I dig a wire and electrocute myself there, right? So called them out, and guys painting out there. And I had a, uh, you saw Joel's uh, picture, uh, or graduation picture on a little stake out there, 2020. And so obviously I'm white. Joel, my daughter's African-American. And this is a guy who drives a city truck now, okay, elderly Af uh, white man, and he said, uh, is that your daughter? I said, yeah, and he said, uh, did y'all adopt her? And I said, we did. He said, you know, I'm adopted. I said, really? He said, yeah, matter of fact, I've been adopted twice. I was like, really? Tell me more, right? He started sharing the gospel with me. And about a minute in, I was like, I'm, I'm your huckleberry, bro. I'm with you. I'm with you. you I, I, I'm a pastor. And he actually remembered me from speaking at a place 10 years ago that he was at. We started talking. Here's what he said. I have used that literally more times than I can even count to get into a gospel conversation. Every time he can bring it up. And when he says, I've been adopted twice, what do people automatically do? Really? What does that mean? Let me tell you. Here's a guy 
elderly white man driving around a city truck with a can of paint, painting lines on grass. But he's living for the king and the kingdom. See, there's no separation. <laughs> We're all in, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, from painting grass to changing diapers to washing dishes to interacting with our lost neighbors to with our spouses. That's the great, talk about purpose and meaning. We live for the king who's come, and we live for the king's return when he sets up his kingdom. Those are three, but there's a bunch more. So I want you to ask yourself the question this morning. So what? So what? In light of what you've heard this morning, how might you have this beautiful picture of the king's return that transforms the way you actually live while you wait for his return. There's nothing like it. I know it's hard, but it makes everything count. Even pandemics, okay? Even strife in our country. We, God needs his people living for his kingdom. Take a minute and ask that question, so what? Jesus, I, uh, on a real personal level, just felt so overwhelmed thinking how you pulled me out of that living, and there was no life in it, none of it, so you've been so kind to me. You've been so kind, even as we sang this morning, your goodness is chasing after me. You are so kind to not only bring us to salvation, but your goodness chases after us in the process of sanctifying and, and, and growing us and changing us. Lord, I pray more than anything that this church and other churches around the country and the world would chase hard after the king 
and live for the kingdom. Help us to see what role we can play. Help us to adopt uh, engagement and strategies like the, like the town worker from Murfreesboro. My goodness. It makes everything count. Whether we eat or sleep, we do all for the glory of God, for the king and for his kingdom. Help us to wake up a spiritual, spiritual awakeness. Give us smelling salts from your word as we open it, that you would wake us up to the reality of eternity. We love you, and we ask that in Christ's name, and everyone said, Amen.